the vanished moment in Iceland has been my main field, my life, my interests, my working place since 85. But have you heard about the women's strike in Iceland? The first one was in 1975. It was the day the women's decade at UN started. And we, that was when we didn't have any women's movement and we thought it's time to do something. And women decided to strike. And 25,000 women went to the streets of Reykjavik. The biggest demonstration ever at the time. And that was the life-changing moment for me and for many other women. Yeah. I realized that my uncomfortable life, my tension, I was normal suddenly. I, I, I was not alone. All other women had the same feelings. And I realized this day that we would find a way to channelize this power. And so we have done that many times. Uh, when we calculated that women had only 66% of men's total salaries, which meant that at 2.25 every day, we started to work voluntary work until 5 o'clock. And why on earth should we do that? And we decided not to. And we decided to meet in the center of Reykjavik. I took part in the Women's Alliance. I don't know if you've heard about that. That no. is a very interesting chapter in Icelandic women's history. Yeah. And then I, I am a biologist. I was uh -huh. working at the university when the women's movement took over in my life. Wow. And I started to work for the Women's Alliance, which was a group of women that run for parliament and for the municipalities. And it was the only women's feminist party in the world that had representatives in both parliament and in the municipalities. And when we really succeeded, we had 10% of the votes. So we really had influence in Icelandic politics in setting the agenda and changing the power structure. Wow. And from there, I decided that I wanted to have a look inside the women's shelter because I have lived a privileged life and I didn't have a clue about violence against women. And I went through the door and that took over my life. Since then, it was in 1988, I have been involved in gender-based violence sector mm. here and in Norway, Nordic, Europe, yeah. international, wow. everywhere. So if you were a biologist and it just took over your life, how did that happen? How did the women's movement take over your life? I felt that I was the happiest woman in the world because I had found my place in life. I thought biology was the most interesting thing. Mm. That w I was so happy that I'd found my right place. But I was also a feminist and I had all the time this urge of... I, I never felt confident in the society I lived in. And I had been, I had been stretching the limits in all kinds of directions. Yeah. And then we got the women's strike... Yeah. And we got the Women's Alliance. And I decided that I would replace the woman who was working as a coordinator for two months. So I got a leave from my work. But she never came back and I never went back to my old work. I was wondering what were the main objectives at the time? Was it to do with violence or was it to do with political representation or prostitution or what were the sort of main... Uh, it was just women's position in Iceland, you know. Yeah. The political situation, the gender pay gap and the whole structure, our world was not on the agenda. When I had my first 
daughter, there were no daycare centers. And the school system were organized in such a way that somebody had to stay at home because the children were coming and leaving home all day. So it was the women's role to be at home. And at the same time, we wanted to take part in society and we had education and we compared our lives to the lives of women in the other Nordic countries, which uh-huh. had much better situation. Yeah, yeah, I see. You were part of the original group who started Stigamot? Yeah. There was one woman who was the brain behind all this. She has exactly the same name as I have, Gudrun Jonsdottir. It's like John Smith in English. It's yeah. the most common name in the country. She was the brain. I was working at the time in the women's shelter. And there were some small groups of women that together created Stiamon. And I was uh, the representative of one of the groups. Women were outsiders in politics. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to Björk and she was telling me about when Stigamot was established. Yeah. And she said that the women who founded Stigamot were also the ones who were collecting data on violence against women yeah. and presenting that to Parliament in order basically to demonstrate that it's happening at all. So really it was the second wave feminists in Iceland that started to create an environment in which women existed at all. Yeah. When we started the Women's Alliance, I had no idea about the violence against women. Yeah. That came later. You know, everything happened. The women's movement flourished when we started to make our personal life political yeah all this happened yeah and we opened the women's shelter in 82 yeah and when women had got a safe space they started to speak out about things that nobody dreamed of wow and i still remember in 85 when we had this feminist magazine vera it was at this time when i was working in the women's alliance and the women who were working at the women's shelter wrote a piece about incest. And I remember my own reaction. I got mad. I thought, they are crazy. How dare they talk about things like that? And I am a radical feminist. They must be crazy. It was such a shock. Gudrun, my my good friend and mentor who started all this, she was creating the social work faculty in the university. And when women started to talk about things like that, she was creative enough to decide to find out. So her students, they were studying law and sociology or something like that. She got them to lend a lot of phones and they they went into media and announced that for two nights, everybody who had been subjected to violence as a child could call. And if they wanted to tell about the violence and if they wanted to take part in self-help groups, dealing with the consequences of violence. This was in 85. And all the phones were glowing, you know, and they were suddenly, we realized that this was real. And that was the start of opening Stiamont. Stiamont opened in 1990. Before that, we had those self-help groups working. I remember there was a film showed in 88, I think, and we had to open phones after the, film and one of uh-huh. my friends was talking on the phone and she was talking to a man who told her that he had murdered his perpetrator. You know, he had never told anybody. The man just disappeared. That's how people reacted because incest was not part of our world. We had no clue. 
But afterwards, of course, when I think back, it was all around me. I knew which girls were violated at home, but there were no words for it. I'm sure it's the same with you, everywhere. Mm. What were the other main forms of violence that you were noticing other than incest? To begin with, it was male violence against women in partnerships. That was the first form. And of course, rape. Prostitution? Not at the time. But afterwards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a kind of revolution. The pornification of the society happened around the year 2000 when the trafficking started. And suddenly we had those... I was in Norway and moved home in 96. And when I came home, there were suddenly 10 so-called strip clubs in Reykjavik. And it was very fancy and uh, looked innocent, beautiful gentlemen dancing. And uh, I started to work here at Stiermont in 99, even though I'd been enrolled all the time. And then we started to fight the clubs. And the women dancing came from Baltican, where the situation was horrible at the time. From where? Estonia, Latvia uh-huh. and Lithuania. Uh-huh, yeah. And later yeah. from other poorer countries. And the women found their way to Stiermont. And we realized that what was happening at the clubs was not innocent, beautiful women dancing. It was nothing but trafficking. The strip clubs were, in fact, brothels. And in the the winter 2000, a policeman estimated that we had at least 1,000 foreign women who came to Iceland to dance at the clubs, which is a huge number in such a small community. We imported one foreign woman for every 100 Icelandic men, 18 years and older, which is much more than in the other Nordic countries. But then I have to add that the women could only be in Iceland for one month at a time. They found a hole in the tax laws in Iceland. So if you came to Iceland as an artist, you could work without paying tax for one month. So they were moving women out, in and out of the country. And they, at least it was 1,000 women. And the club went 13, 14, I think, when it was at the worst. At some point it became criminalized. Oh, yeah. That took us 10 years to criminalize the buying of women and to close down the clubs. What was that process? Did you start by going to Parliament? Did you start by going to the pimp? All of it? All of it. Do you have memories of... Oh, yeah. I remember that I went to a conference in Sweden in 1999, I think. Sweden was the first out, as you know. It was called the Swedish model to criminalize the buyers, but not the women in prostitution. And that happened in 1999. And I was at a conference and I was talking about the clubs and I was describing what was happening at home. And when I came out, the women helped me to define what was happening and Uh. putting it into pattern. And uh, we made a press release in Sweden and the press release got to Iceland. And suddenly when I came home, there was not one news hour anywhere without me being attacked for talking about prostitution and trafficking. They didn't even know the words. You know, the clubs just sneaked into society. Yes. And when I pointed out, or we at Stiermont, that what was going on, that this was nothing but prostitution and trafficking, 
and we could show illegal contracts that the women had signed. It cost huge fuss. Even the government, the Minister of Social Affairs, he got furious at me. The government, everybody, and they laughed at us when yeah. we talked about closing down the clubs and all yeah. those things that yeah. needed to happen. That was horrible. I remember this week, and the worst thing was when a man called me here and told me that he knew the names of my daughters and where they lived. That was kind of the worst thing I've ever. And I gathered my daughters like that. And I was warned that if I dared to go into this, something horrible would happen because they had got this freedom of presenting this as a very modern, uh, free style of entertainment. Mm. And we used media. We made alliances with members of parliament. We had one woman working with us. She was laughed at. We wrote a bill and she was laughed at. She was alone. She almost got kicked out of parliament. It took 10 years to get more and more support until that became a law. Were there also sort of things going on like um, graffiti, strip bars or smashing windows or that, you know? That we did of... all kinds of things. Yeah. We, we didn't smash windows though. All kinds of other things. At this time, we had Stiermod, we had the feminist organization, we had some parliamentarians and individual women. And in, in Iceland, you have this kind of one case groups, you know. We had the traditional housewives. We got the whole women's movement working with us. We were privileged in Iceland. There were no tension within the women's movement. Yeah, so you didn't have resistance from women, really. No. Right. and I think that was also, at least partly because Stiermont was leading this fight, and we were working with women who had been sexually abused. Stiermont is working with incest and rape, and we had been in contact with women in prostitution. We had a hotline for women in prostitution. Right. Those are pictures made by my friend in prostitution. Wow. Because it was Stiermont, and we were respected for our work, with violence, and we connected prostitution and violence, nobody questioned it. But did that not at any stage put the... Because was Stigamot government funded? Yes. And did that put your funding in jeopardy? Never. They have never dared to connect funding and our politics. Really? No. Is there a constitution in Iceland or something that protects your ability to have that political autonomy? do with the goodwill and respect well, that Stiermont has. They yeah. would never dare to cut down the funding right. here. Also because they know if they would do that, they would have to be official services for women, and that would make it much, much more expensive. When did you finally succeed in criminalizing films and sex In bars? 2009, uh-huh. we got the law in place. Before that, we had got in place what they called the private dancing at the clubs, you know, which of course was prostitution. We got that criminalized before, you know, it was step by step. And then we got the law and drank a lot of champagne, thinking that now everybody would live happily ever after, Uh which of course didn't happen, because the law has never been implemented in Iceland. There was a huge resistance within the police, and also the ministers, the parliamentarians didn't have the guts. There was a lack of political will to really implement wow. the law. Is that 
still part of the work you're doing now? It has become much better because we got a new head of police, a woman, a feminist. Incredible. Wow. They're doing everything they can to get rid of her, but she's still there, and we are supporting her the best we can. So it has changed. But our fight has been enormous, and we have done all kinds of creative things in our fight against the clubs. I want to show you some kind of our activism. Uh-huh, yeah. I don't know if you heard about Operation Big Sister. No. That was when we had created Christina House. It's a, it was a shelter for trafficked women, women that were getting out of prostitution. We ran that for two years. And we had 85 women who were volunteers because we didn't have any money to run the house. So we were in daily contact with women that had been trafficked in Iceland or had been in prostitution. We had the law in place, we had thrown out the clubs, but still there was this huge demand. There were ads in the newspapers, nobody was doing anything about it. We had been writing, press releasing, complaining and everything, and nothing happened. And we heard the, the leader of the police organization say on TV at least twice, you know, the law on prostitution. It's so stupid that we are not even going to try to implement it. Ask if it is the role of the police to decide which law to implement or not. So it got to the point, and that's what I'm proud of with the Icelandic women's movement. We have this fine feeling of when enough is enough. And that's when we started Operation Big Sister. And we start, we decided to play the game, uh, the, the boys' game. You know, the key to a flourishing prostitution industry is the anonymity of the buyers. Yeah. If they are sure not to be caught, they will buy women. Yeah. So we started to put in ads in the, on the web pages and in the newspaper, that were daily newspaper everywhere. In, in spite of the law, they were still uh, putting in ads on prostitution. And we found out that within an hour after we put in an ad, hundreds of men were willing to buy us. The younger we played, the more uh, popular we got. And we collected their names and emails and unregistered phones. And to begin with, we said, don't you know that buying women is criminal in Iceland? Big Sister is watching you. And we had been doing this for a while. Wow. Was, we had our own unregistered phones. And I was trying to sell myself. Hello, I said. How old are you? Me? I'm 32. You're not? Yes. And then we were selling each other here and playing, and we were reporting, re- recording the, the, the phone calls. And we had been doing this for a while, and we were chatting on that. We had to, it was very difficult because you had to use their language. We had to learn how to speak about ourselves and about prostitution and camps and whatever that was. And then one woman said, Oh, sisters, uh, the client was so insisting that I agreed to meet him at some place, at a certain time and place. What am I going to do? And another one said, Hmm, poor guy, I think he will be lonely. I will send my man to meet him. So women were gathering all kinds of men to the same place at the same time and then a horrible woman called the police and said there's a group of suspicious men hanging out there. And then one woman said, I'm getting tired of this. Why are we doing it? 
remember, another one said, the police doesn't have either money or, or man to, to investigate prostitution, so we are helping the police. Oh, yes, she said, well, that, that's happened. So she started to send the clients right to the home of the head of police at the time, knocking on his doors. They were supposed to meet at some horrible places, and they were supposed to have the newspaper with the ads under their arms, and then there were women on stakeout seeing the men with the newspaper under their arms. Wow! And then we decided that we had to do something more. So we decided to have a press conference. And it was very important for us to be anonymous, both because we wanted to scare men away from buying women, and also because those women were lawyers and teachers and nurses and women in prostitution and all kinds of women that would never do this if they would be recognizable. Their husbands often did not know about what they were doing. So we sought burkas, and we are not there because we are so good at sewing. Somebody accused us cookies club, which was not our intention. And then we had the press conference. We hired a beautiful hall in Reykjavik, and a woman sent out a beautiful cards with stars and silvers to all the buyers, inviting them to a reception where she promised that they would meet very interesting women at the same place and at the same time as the press conference. So we invited the buyers to meet the press there. And... Um, there we are, and we played some. We played. We showed them a picture of a oh dick that somebody sold. You say dick or pick or what? You call, penis. Yeah. And we put a picture of. Does anybody know this penis? No. Then we can continue. Things like that. Played some, some uh, calls, and three women went to the police. We called, of course, the media. So the whole media was following us. And uh, three women went to the police with 56 names, 117 phone numbers, and 26 email addresses. To the police that said it was impossible to investigate. So, you know, they said it will go underground. And we said, bullshit. Prostitution can never be underground. You have to be able to sell the women. So therefore you have to be able to find them. And we made demands, you know, cut, close down the, the web pages, find the newspaper, you know, yeah. bring money to the police and things like that. And very shortly after, suddenly they met, the police got 25 million krona and started to investigate prostitution. They got 25 million what? Icelandic krona. From, from the government, government. Because we had shown how ridiculous their arguments were. It is, of course, very easy. If you want to find it, you will. That's amazing. Yeah. We did all key. Once, if you want to hear more about, you, 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 you know, we are very aware that we have to have fun in the, in the yeah. movie because we are dealing with deadly serious matters. So we have to play around. Yeah. One day there was this, um, we heard on radio that they were going to have, what you call it, wet t-shirt competition. There was a radio station and yeah. they would, women were supposed to compete about being the most beautiful wet t-shirt something. And we got very uh, angry and pissed off and thought, what are we going to do? Are we going to stand out there and demonstrate you are horrible or something like that? And you know, nothing happens if you do that. So instead, the, the feminist organization organized 
and it was so popular that men were standing in row outside, hundreds of men were standing in rows to get in to see the women, the breasts of women. And uh, Iceland, and the women, the feminist organizations stood outside and, and uh, decided to be very polite and smiling and have food and said something about, well, welcome to the group whacking of men by invitation by the radio station, something. And they handed out the tissue. They had, please, my darling, handed out the tissues to all the men for a group whacking. And of course, they got into media. Our latest uh, project was when a journalist called us, it was in 2013, and said, Hello, what does Diamond think about the champagne clubs? Champagne clubs, said a colleague of my innocent young woman. We love champagne at Diamond. What, are you inviting us? No. Why are you asking? Well, he said, I went to the champagne clubs. Suddenly, there are, they, have, they have opened three champagne clubs in, Re in Reykjavik this summer. Two of them, by coincidence, are situated in the same places as the old street clubs. And what you can buy is you can go in there and buy a cheap bottle of champagne for 20,000 krona, which is much higher than it costs. And if you do so, you, you are allowed to go somewhere back and have a chat with the women from Slovenia who are working at the clubs. And they neither speak Icelandic or English. And then you can also go to the same club and buy the same cheap bottle of champagne for 60,000 krona. And then you can have a chat with the girls for 60,000 krona. And my colleague said, this is exactly the place, uh, the prices of prostitution we were running. Uh, the shelter for trafficked women at the same time. And she said, all the bells are ringing about prostitution and trafficking. What do you think about that? And that's our view. We didn't know that this is, uh, this is disturbing. The day after he wrote about this in media, that's how we found out about the champagne club, the day after we got a letter from a lawyer suing us that if we would not withdraw those horrible statements about the respectful work of the champagne clubs, we would have to pay two million krona, which they always do. The clubs always find women who spoke out. So we knew this was for real. And we sat at our kitchen table, as usual, whining and being angry and frustrated and said, what on earth are we going to do? Are we going to give up? We have fought for 15 years and we are back to the same situation under new names. Are we going to stand outside and say, this is prostitution. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's oh, God. You know, yeah. Nothing would happen. And yeah. I wrote a press release. And I have to say that even though I say it myself, it was brilliant. I put in all the right arguments, you know. And we sent it to the press and nothing happened, of course. You know, it just vanished. And we sat there we sat. And I woke up this one morning and thought, enough is enough. Now we have to do something. We have to. So we sent out an invitation to the government, to all parliamentarians, to the members of the city council, to the head of police, which was not a feminist at the time, and a cop to media, inviting them to a reception because of the opening of Stigamot's own glamorous champagne club. And we put ads in the newspapers and in the radio this day saying, Interesting women for sale in Stigamold, only 20,000 krona for 10 minutes. 
and uh, one of the reporters from the, the, the TV called me and said, you are opening a club at 7 o'clock. Yes, I said, are you coming? Well, that's when we are sending out the news. What are you going to do about it? I said, we have to come and send out directly from the opening. He said, welcome. And that's what went on the news Whoa. that day. One of the club closed down, five men in custody and three more arrested for tr- possible trafficking and pimping. If we wouldn't have done this, nothing would have happened. And by by being and traditional, you got the attention of the media. You know, sometimes we manage to really turn things upside down. And that's how, when we succeed. New Zealand, we passed legislation on the pay gap. Yeah. In 1972, we had what's called the Equal Pay Act. 75 in Iceland. Uh-huh. When you had a strike recently, mm-hmm. I think in the last couple of years. Yeah. I remember, you know, there were a lot of women who got excited in New Zealand about the Iceland strike and, oh, we should do this. And I was feeling a little bit frustrated because I've come to the point of view that if we don't talk about prostitution, we're never going to close the pay gap. Partly because I feel like uh, pimps and people who capitalise from the sex trade have an interest in keeping wages low for women because we're not contributors, we are commodities and if we have equal pay, there's no more sex trade and so there's a structural reason in the economic system, there's a structural systemic reason why we're paid less, it's not just a hangover from old patriarchy it's a result of the current model which says women are commodities and I feel like in New Zealand I was thinking, if we don't talk about prostitution, we're just going to tread water on the pay gap and it's been like that so you know we have a fully decriminalized mm-hmm. sex trade and have had since I think 2003 it's getting worse and I think the pay gap is fluctuating but last report I read is that it's increasing and I feel like the negotiations are sort of incremental steps where it's like okay you get a little pay rise for the care workers and then you get a little pay rise for the service. But they're always making you try and sort of, for instance, they try and make us find comparators. So if you're looking at a female-dominated sector industry, we have to find a male sector industry which does comparable work and so that we can... But to me, that neglects the point, which is that it's women who are underpaid, not the work. And you can't acknowledge that or address that root if you don't talk about prostitution Mm -hmm. so sometimes like when I see women in New Zealand oh they're doing this in Iceland we have to do that here I think well they're talking about prostitution in in Iceland and I wonder if that's part of why you make more progress on things like the pay gap because you have a fuller more coherent movement whereas ours is like yay prostitution but we still want equal pay it's like no it doesn't work like that I see the patriarchy as some kind of monster that attacks us in a million ways at the same time for me it's a little bit too simple to say that the the pay gap is because they need us to have lower salaries um, 
they need us to have lower salaries for a lot of reasons. Oh, One yeah. of them, of course, is prostitution. Yeah. So that they, we can easily be bought and sold. Yeah. Of course, but also they want to have a cheap labor, and in this way, the men are the one who are earning money. And if somebody needs to be at home, of course, it's the woman because she gets less salaries. You know, mm. there are hundreds of ways to oppress us, mm. mm. uh, as I see it. Mm. And I would not say either pay gap or pro- both of it is yeah. horrible. Yeah, but and when you say about keeping women in the home, to me that brings me back to this idea of women as property. Yeah. Which is essentially a prostitution issue. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like, to me, I can't separate the issue of the pay gap with the issue of prostitution. No. It's the same entwined yeah. issue. Yeah. So that's more the point. It's Support not, each other. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you can't fight one without looking at the other. And if you support one of them, you don't really have a chance with the other. That's mm-hmm. how I feel. Like if you think women are oh, well, women should be paid less, but they shouldn't be sexually exploited. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to work. And if you say, um, well, women should be paid equally, but prostitution is fine, it's not. No. That's not going to work. No, 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 no. So that's why I feel like as well. Why I've been looking at what's happening. You have to have a holistic view, which has to include everything, all of this. Yeah. But I also think that we have succeeded in many ways. We have really yeah. raised consciousness about prostitution and we had majority in every party, both by women and men, for criminalizing prostitution. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. We gained that point and we closed down the clubs, but of course the demand is huge. So the mentality hasn't really shifted yet, you think? It has changed. We have less prostitution in Iceland than we did when it was worst. I, I think I can be confident to say that. Yeah. But of course it's still there. And Björk told me that the crime rates here were quite low. Do you think that they've reduced since prostitution was criminalized? Or no. no, it's not that simple. We have an annual report in Stigamot every year. We have a huge increase in rape and gang rape and mm. all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We're always topping ourselves. And this is wow. our statistic every year. So why do you think that is? I mean... I've looked at, for instance, in I think Sweden or Norway, I saw some reports that said that violence has increased since the Nordic model. But then I also read that, first of all, there's more reporting. And secondly, the tolerance has decreased. So now if someone has their hair pulled, that counts as violence, whereas that would never count as violence when you have commercial rape happening. So I'm wondering if... Do you Same think thing is happening. The violence here. is increasing, or the reporting and the tolerance level. All of this, I think. Uh-huh. All of this, because now women are talking about also the difficult cases when they are drunk and maybe not even remember who the rapist is. Still, yeah. they they feel raped and they want to do something about it. The reporting rate is getting higher and getting more and more easy to talk about it. Yeah. But I also think you have this tendency within Europe. In yeah. The countries that are supposed to be most equal, gender equal, they have the highest rate of rape. It counts for Sweden, Denmark and Iceland. And the rate is growing compared to south of Europe. And that has to do with reporting and speaking out. But also women are more threat when they are getting so strong. So you have to rape them and beat them. It's like corrective 
I don't know which part is most important, but all this comes together. Yeah. Last year we had more gang rapes than we have ever seen. We wow. had 29 gang rapes. At least 70 men outside took part in such organized crime. Just the people who came to Stigamot, mostly women of course. Then we have drug rapes, 27 drug rapes last year. We had 213 rape cases here. The year before, they were 155. So you had this explosion. And so since you've had some really significant wins, so you've changed the law on prostitution and you've had these amazing marches that have led to changes in the pay gap. Mm-hmm. Do you think that women are still vigilant or do you think that they're going starting to relax a bit or maybe even too much? Because sometimes when you have policy changes, you think, okay, I'm done, like you said about the drinking yeah, of champagne. that is possible. But I think last year the reason we got this explosion of people seeking help we also welcome men here because we are dealing with incest and, you know, boys are raped. It's women and children. So the men who come here, they are grown-up boys dealing with old violence. What happened last year was that we got 39 people. We had a fundraising program on TV. 39 people spoke out on TV about violence and how they had uh, been empowered by dealing with the violence which was such an encouragement to people out there to see it's possible to get a better life, you know. I'm going to go there too. I think that was the main reason why this happened here. Wow. With Tiamat. How many staff do you have? We are, uh, we are 11 now. It's not a lot for the amount of work that you're doing, though. No. Are there how many similar organizations exist in Iceland? Not or? None like us. No. But there you also have the rape crisis shelter and you have the women's shelter. But most of the people coming here, only 9% reported the rapes. They come here to help mm. themselves. They don't come to get revenge or nobody believes in the justice system. It's just So ridiculous. they don't bother reporting? No. And no. if they do, about 11% of reported rape cases lead to sentence. Yeah, this is similar yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. What kind of work is being done on that? All kinds of work. We, we, I don't think we will ever get a justice system that is acceptable. The whole idea of the justice system is ridiculous. And you've even got, like, you've had a sort of a lesbian prime minister and uh, now a feminist in charge of the police and still mm. it feels to you like it's impossible to... No, it's not. It's this... It, the justice system is the core of patriarchy. Yeah. And um, so so uh, I think we would have to have a revolution to make that work. Yeah. 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 And we are doing... We are doing... The la- our, new, uh, our latest ideas are about kind of a collective report of the Icelandic state to the Human Rights Court, to the set of Commission, something like that. That's what we are trying to figure out if we can do that. Yeah. And I think it might be interesting and it would make, I think, world news if the women in the so-called paradise of gender equality, which is Iceland, are reporting the state because they are not protecting women or mm. bringing justice. We are playing with ideas like that. So what specifically, what reporting the state, what, like going to you the know, UN? You know, set of commission, 
the, the Commission on the Status of Women says that the states that have signed the treaty are supposed to protect their citizens and bring justice. And if they don't, the Central Commission will shame them and blame them. And you are allowed to report to the Setup Commission about the situation in your country. Right. And if we bring matters, if we can get 50 women, that's very easy, to report the Icelandic state to show the pattern of that this is not individual cases, this is really a pattern, then we might get somewhere, maybe. We are also thinking about the human rights court. It's very difficult, but then you could make that state pay fights, you know. That's what we are playing with. Wow. Wow. We have been in contact with some interesting uh, human rights lawyers that are uh-huh. willing to help us. Wow. But we are not there yet. No. There has mean. been this movement of our, uh, of the Stigamot people. They are speaking out and they are we have got there, you know. It's not. We have thrown out the shame and the blame. Mm. Where is the conversation between Scandinavia and Northern Europe? Well, a lot has happened. You have. I don't know if you know that, but you have the European Women's Lobby, which is the light, the largest umbrella organization of women organization in Europe, within the EU, and it's located in Brussels, and we are part of it, although we are not part of the EU. And they are quite radical, and their policy is our policy, so we can easily work with them. And you have a change in policy in the European Parliament. You have this Committee on Gender Equality, which has recommended the Hannibal Report, recommends that we go the Nordic way. You have changed the law in Canada, in Northern Ireland, and in France Mm -hmm. towards our policy. So there are all kinds of forces going on at the same time. And then to try to have conversation with a feminist from the other school, we use the same arguments to come to completely different conclusions. We use exactly the same arguments. You have to listen to the women. My view comes from the women of Stigamots, and they say the same thing. Then we have, for instance, I'm going to Vienna now on uh, Sunday to a meeting in the so-called advisory board of Wayne, which is the shelter movement of Europe. We disagree on prostitution, but we agree on everything else. Mm. And the only way for us to work together is to not take a stand within that forum on prostitution and agree that we will work in different forums with the question of prostitution. If we, not, if we would not do that, we, we couldn't work on anything. So I go there with bad taste in my mouth, and so do the others, and we meet and respect it. In that forum, we work on partner violence, rape, all kinds of things. Then I will go to the European Women's Lobby and fight them on prostitution, yeah, yeah. and they will fight me. That's the only way we have found, you know. Then you have all kinds. I don't know if you know them, you have the coalition against trafficking in women yeah. and you have equality now, those are the biggest. And then you have European Women's Lobby, those are the three international organizations that we are very involved in on these issues. But the so-called sex workers' rights organization are in many ways so much stronger and of course they are funded by the pips and blah blah blah. Of course, of course. Yeah. Mm. I wondered what you might 
I mean, I don't know how much you know about the situation in New Zealand. Um, Not much. Violence rates are very high for the OECD as well. But to women in a country who look to Iceland a lot and want to have the same wins as you've had on the pay gap, but don't want to do some of the work that you've done on things like prostitution. When I listen to you, I realise once again how very privileged we are here. We are in a micro-community. Things are possible here that would never be possible anywhere else. At the same time, when Mm. I talk about the women's strikes in Iceland abroad, women always say to me, and when I talk about our activism, they say, this would be impossible in my country. And then I ask again, how do you know that? Have you ever tried? No change will happen if you don't believe that you can change your society. You have to be convinced that it's you, you have to be the change maker. You cannot sit and whine, you have to do it yourself. You have to organize and you have to get rid of all the rules you've heard about how women should behave and what is acceptable and all those rubbish, you know. And uh, that, I think, happened. In my life it happened on the 25th of October 1975 at the women's strike when I realized that everything is possible. And that I would, from that day, act from that. I want to show you those pictures. Yes. Because they are so dear to me. Those pictures, we have an art therapist in our house. Because some women don't have words to what they are doing. And Christine came here and asked so many others. She had been brutally violated and uh, as a child, sexually uh, tortured by members of her family. And when she came here, this was her way of expressing herself. She had been drug addicted for a while, and the only way you can manage when you are drug addicted is to sell your body. And this is how she felt. She was living in the flames of hell, and this is the drugs, and those are the eyes of the pit who tortured her and sold her. And this is, you shouldn't generalize, but this is really what we meet almost every day, women in this situation. And what can you do with them? And she kept working and working. And here she was working with her, with, with her, this was the pimp. Wow. And when she thought about the pimp, the most horrible things were his eyes and what happened in his head and what he said to her the hate speech and the humiliation. And this is she, it wouldn't down the drain, so small compared to him. And then she was talking about prostitution, and that's what came on her paper, what they said to her, the snake out of their mouth. And of course, the penis and all those fingers. And she had managed to do what a woman in prostitution has to be capable of, taking her head out of the situation, trying to put something nice and protect herself. And if you have been subjected to violence while a child, you have already learned how to do that, you know, how to survive in prostitution. And then... So this is the dissociation? Yeah. Yeah. What is this? Uh, some kind of protection. Yeah, like a, a yeah. fence. And she was always angry. Those were words she wanted to cut them. And here she, she could not go down Leiderville. She, she could not go to the big malls because she had no idea who had bought her, who had seen the porn pictures of her, 
and she was so angry at the buyers and this was how she expressed that. And then she managed to do the impossible. She managed to get out of drugs and out of prostitution. And I used this picture, I got her permission to do that, to show how strong women get if they come to Stigamot, you know. And I felt, you know, um, we saved her, kind of, I thought. And she had this mission, she had this dream to educate people about prostitution, you know, the myths about the happy hooker. We have never met the happy hooker here. And she often was in media, never, she was always covered, but she tried to teach people. And she was the main witness in a report made by the Minister of Justice at the time about uh, the social circumstances of women in prostitution, which had a huge effect in media. But three weeks after that report was public, she gave up and she took her own life. And that was the worst day of my life. And suddenly I looked at the picture again and I saw she never got out of the fire. You know, the fire was inside her. And I, I felt responsible for her life. And I felt that how on earth did we think that we had enough knowledge to deal with prostitution? And nobody should ever talk to a woman in prostitution if you didn't have psychiatry education and 10 years of special education in prostitution. And I promised myself that I would never ever try, I would never talk to a woman in prostitution. I felt so, that I didn't have the knowledge or training or understanding or anything. And uh, I sat on the sofa for three months and I really considered to get out of here. And I felt that I had failed so badly. And all of us, we just thought, because she was one of us. And uh, I had been trying for a long time to get in touch with other women in uh, abroad so she could work with them. I, and I never found anything at the time. It's a long time ago. And then, three months after she took her own life, I wake up and I thought, how stupid can you be? Did you really think that she would give up her life so that you would give up? Did you think that was what she would want from you? She is still teaching you. She's still teaching you that the consequences of violence and prostitution are so serious that they can even be fatal. And instead of giving up, you are going to be the best on the subject. And I suddenly realized that she had been trying everything possible. She had been seeing that she had been in rehab many times. She had been the social services. She met a psychiatrist who raped her, you know. She had been all over, but the only place where she felt safe was here at Stiermont. And I suddenly realized that the best thing I could ever do for her was to become the best in the field, that Stiermont would become the best in the field. And we have imported all the best people in the world here to train us. We sent the staff to Denmark to train us to work with women in prostitution. We have the women in prostitution have taught us what what they could. So if there ever is a day that I want to give up, she is still sitting on my shoulder. So I wanted to be here with her. And then I hear about the sex workers organization saying you have to listen to the women in prostitution. As if I didn't do that. So now I have introduced you to Christine. And you know, sometimes this work is very hard. 
It was very hard when I was trying to sell myself on the phone. But she was sitting here and having a laugh with me. And we called our shelter for traffic women Christine's house. And we called the fund for women in prostitution Christine's fund, you know. She's still mm. here in our spirit. And she told you about her work? Or you've been looking at it and... She did not tell me about this work. She told me about her life in prostitution. She told the art therapist. This was what she did in art therapy. But after she died, we decided to use those pictures. Mm. And um, I know that she would want us to do that. Mm. Nobody knows who she really was. We have never told her, you know, Christine is the most common name in Iceland. Although you say Christine, no, but doesn't say anything. So we are still keeping her anonymous. Your last night was talking to me about how she was teaching self-defense here in the beginning. She told me the same story, that she came to a meeting one time when uh, Stigamot was just starting, and she said that she knew how to do self-defense, and they said, right, you're staying with us. <laughs> and so she said she was teaching self-defense and she was a counsellor for victims of sexual abuse for, I think she said, eight years maybe, a long time. She said the same thing. She said at some point she was talking to women and she realised some women could do what you saw first in this picture and get out. Yeah. And some women couldn't, or maybe they could, but they didn't. And she said she didn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. And because she didn't know the difference, she nearly gave up because she felt like, how can she work with these people if she doesn't know what it is that they need to go on? And she said she had that same, what you had for three months, where she just withdrew. And she was like, I need to find something to work with otherwise I'm afraid that I'm going to fail it just makes you but you know she gave up but imagine how much she did for us you know uh, I feel that I owe her to continue I have some women here it's not just Christine there are many women here Yeah. they keep me going 